Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast, the number one gaming podcast in the Nordic region. We're bringing together the best technical leaders from across the gaming industry to discuss passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm Aaron, and I connect businesses with talented freelancers within the Unreal Engine community. Today, I'm joined by Adam, Bogdan, and Stoyan to discuss creating high-performance teams. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Nordic's Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Adam, do you want to kick us off with who you are, what you do, and how long you've been in the industry? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Adam Clark, so I am a producer. Um, got into the industry uh, through product management. Um, prior to that, I was doing, I was an engineer, a developer, coder, but in like the multi programs, finance, worked for Charles Schwab, people like that. Uh, then I joined EA and I spent probably 15 years with EA in a producer role and did that across uh, Singapore, Vancouver, San Francisco, and then finally the last five years at DICE in Stockholm. And then about this time last year, uh, with three others, we founded a studio called Wayfinder Games, uh, where we're setting out to uh, make role-playing games. Um, yeah, that's me. Awesome. And Bogdan, do you want to start off with who you are, what you do, and how long you've been in the industry? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, um, this year is going to mark my biggest uh, anniversary in the gaming industry. Uh, I started off in uh, in QA in, uh, at UB. Spent a uh, big chunk of my career, like years. Then uh, moved uh, companies. Had my own uh, gig for like six years as well. And since uh, 2020, so almost three years ago, joined as at uh, Olsen, set up uh, the branch in uh, in Romania and uh, now I'm serving as, uh, as the, the chairman of, of Wilson. Wilson we do or action RPG have their plugin that for DNA and probably this is what we're gonna keep on doing for the foreseeable future. Awesome and last but not least Stoyan do you want to finish us off with who you are what you do and how long you've been in the industry? All right. So my name is Stoyan Sternoff. It is my actual name. It's not random generated, <laughs> whatever websites may tell you. Um, comparatively, I'm a bit of a spring chicken. I only have, I believe, seven, eight years. God, eight years in the industry. I had a technical background. Actually, I was into physics and programming, but then I decided to dive into design. So initially I was doing experimental stuff. So ARG, VR, uh, educational things. Then I did mobile for a while, and then I joined CDPR. So I leapt into kind of the AAA RPG sphere. And from then on to Techland and transitioning into a contractor. And that's how I ended up at my current studio, which is a kind of a small independent uh, Italian development studio. And we're doing a Souls-like, <laughs> not exactly the easiest genre to... Uh, <laughs> To succeed in but it's been an interesting challenge and yeah that's me amazing well yeah no don't worry about your name stoyan we've uh definitely got that in common so don't worry <laughs> <laughs> but yeah now we've got a bit of background on everyone uh let's move on to the topic in focus so you've all got a question or a statement on creating high performance teams so as usual we'll work around the room asking each of you to, to pose your question and your reasons behind of it and each of you will have an opportunity to give your take on the situation as well. Um, so let's start with Stoyan on, on your question. 
and just give us a little bit of context behind it as well. All right. Um, mine is sort of the classic opener, right? So what exactly is the definition of high performance, right? And how do you judge and evaluate it? Um, is it the quantity of output? Is it the quality of output? And how does kind of the work-life balance factor into it? And to give a little bit of context, um, I had the luck to experience quite a few different uh, development contexts, right? So let's say when you're doing education or experimental stuff, things are more lenient. The budgets are um, quite generous, right? So your performance is more abstract. You get to really lean in on the art side um, and stretch deadlines. Then in mobile games, it was the opposite. It was like this well-oiled machine. It was pretty much the closest, I think, game dev gets to software dev, where you really have these uh, short turnarounds and... It's the only time in my um, professional experience where there were actual production plans that were followed to the dot, right? <laughs> a thing that never repeated ever again. Um, and then obviously with AAA, you had these behemoths with uh, $100 million budgets and impossible to plan and things are always moving and, and nobody has the full thing in their head. So I think... Um, Naturally, it depends on the context of the studio, right? And what your project is. Um, I can answer it a bit from the point of view of my current one, uh, which is kind of a mid-sized. It's a 80-odd studio, um, and we're working on a Souls-like. So for us, high performance would be essentially um, more about the output while trying to have a bit of a healthier work-life balance than some of my past experiences in AAA, right? This is a contentious topic, but to me, it's always important. Um, and I think in a creative field like ours, it's also essential for the quality side of it, uh, because if you push people, you're going to get more output, but the quality is going to nosedive very quickly, especially on the design side, because uh, that's mostly where my experience is, of course. And um, I'd be curious what... Uh, Bogdan, Adam, what your take on this is? Well, yeah, I, I think that from my perspective, I think uh, in the definition of hyperforward, uh, first on your opinion, uh, Stan, um, it depends a lot on the kind of business model the company has. It, uh, it really uh, differs from if we're looking at a, like a free-to-play developer or a AAA company or, um, you know, company that does time to market titles or niche games, simulation games, etc. or if we're talking to a, a services company, uh, each, each has its own definition because they all have different values that they, uh, they are aiming for service provider always price himself on the quality, but also on the speed of delivery. And of course, uh, you know, being as cost efficient as possible to be able to uh, be interesting uh, to partner up with or other companies. For a AAA uh, developer, usually it's all about quality. That's the definition of it. Sometimes, I mean, they they they're willing to to spend more money and even uh, move deadlines if need be if they feel that the game is not uh ready i mean the famous uh blizzard quote that we will launch when it's when it's ready i think it became already like a, a mantra uh, for a lot of the developers small developers aspiring developers when they start their companies they want to do the same it's very hard to achieve that but um i think that's pretty much the definition of a of a triple uh, company a triple a developer uh, and of course, it's all about the the culture in the in the company, especially uh, when we're talking about the work life uh, balance. And um, it's uh, I, I highly recommend a book called uh, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. Uh, I don't know if you guys uh, read it uh, by Jason Schreier. Uh, yeah, um, great one. Which actually is his in uh, his his each chapter is about a different game, Diablo. Uh, and so on and so forth. And there are certain uh, interesting aspects that derive from each chapter. 
but I think what uh, what is important and what's uh, you know one of the main conclusions which are actually at the beginning of the book um, are is the fact that pretty much every single video game is made under abnormal circumstances. So you cannot actually um, define certain uh, performance criteria that can be carried on unless you actually do a, an exact replica of the same game. But because the technology evolves, the market changes, um, every time when you're starting a new game, you're facing a different kind of challenge. Maybe a competitor just launched a new game and it's exactly the way you wanted it to be. Yours is only in pre-production, so you had to have to pivot. You have to see how you can, uh, what kind of unique selling points you can still identify. So it's it's very it's it's always uh, uh, a battle, and uh, so that's why it's it's pretty hard to define to have a definition of, of high performance that can match um, all companies, big and small, and all. So and in regards to how we can judge it, I mean, that's probably something that is easier to benchmark or to standardize um, because you need to set some some goals. You need to take time uh, at regular intervals to review the performance, uh, to do some postmortems, to learn what needs to be learned, to iterate, uh, to identify the things that should be improved. Um, and so on and so forth. Um, Stoyan, you want to wanted to? Um, yeah, just to jump in. Actually, uh, when you were talking, I realized um, I don't know if it was intentional, but you raised also another interesting point, which is, um, especially in bigger and, and more complex uh, organizations, there's also the question from whose point of view, right? Um, sense like in Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, one of the games covered is Witcher Three, right? Um, and when I was part of cyberpunk's development one of the problems was exactly what you were saying that witcher 3 was delivered and it had this huge commercial success and therefore the studio accepted that whatever they did in that production would work for the next game um i will let you have your own opinions on whether that was true or not uh but you know clearly you need to adjust uh with each one and externally there can be uh productions where people really think things are working, but then eventually, almost dramatically, the studio can implode because people have secretly been overworked to the point that um, you're going to bleed key talent. And the sort of attrition is how a lot of the legends of the industry like slowly fade away, right? So I would say um, it's it's kind of fascinating because from, let's say, an uh, investor point of view for public companies, it might be about uh, revenue and you know output but from the point of view of let's say a studio head it would be more about sustainability like can you retain talent while still like hitting this high quality bar and that's the really hard part right yeah Bogdan? yeah and to follow up on that i mean it's interesting the what you what you said about the perspective and there is another perspective that uh sometimes we tend to i i see a trend that is getting better in the in the last couple of years but all this trend with community-driven development, I think it's it's very important because it's the thing that can defend the uniqueness and the quality of a game and uh, also somewhat alleviate the pressure from stakeholders or shareholders or whatever because you, at least you have the feedback from the community is a good one. If, if you see that your community is growing, you already have a bit of a feeling that this game has a chance for success. And there is definitely a lot of uh, games out there that have proven that from Subnautica to uh, um, Amplitude with their endless uh, IP and so on, in which really they, they really managed to take it to the next level with community-driven development. And so there, the we're talking about performance or everything else, actually it's even harder to evaluate because it's all about how the game is perceived or how the speed of development is perceived by the community more than anything else. So it's a fascinating question. Like, and we always get this when you go for the first high level question because it makes you step back and go, do we even understand what we're talking about? If we can't measure it, what is it? 
Um, and I think uh, historically, and when you go through mobile and some of these previous experiences, we're talking about not about team performance measurement, we're talking about project performance or product performance because it's easy, right? It's easy to measure how your product is doing and then what, what you were saying with a team that has a great product, does that mean they're a great team? And if the product fails, is that a non-performing team when so much is not in your control? Um, so I, I borrowed from sports often and sports is like, they've got the don't like the commentator will say something really inane, like what they really need to do now is score a goal. It's like that that's outcome management management. It's not particularly useful, right? It's the little things that lead to success on the, in the long term. So are we try and think like, what are the behaviors that lead to a performance team? Uh, what are the, how can we measure those? Are we living in our values? Uh, do people feel safe? Uh, are people able to be creative? Um, does conflict arise and how do you deal with it? Because I think we don't avoid conflict in games. We try and generate it in some cases, but it's how quickly you can deal with it and work through it. Uh, we'll show a strong performing team. Um, through that period at EA, we did all sorts where we would spend a long time getting a team ready, getting a team working, getting a team delivering. And as that product life cycle went, we'd split, split that team up and put them onto new teams. Um, I think uh, the large publishers probably focus on product more than on teams. So the team is assembled for the product. And I think my experience so far is that as an indie is that it's almost the opposite. It's about who we bring into our small culture, our small team, and the product is secondary. And we hope it's good. And we're, you know, that's what we're trying to maximize for and optimize for. Um, but the, the, that core team is so much more important just because it's a, a village, not a, a city or an army, right? Um, so yeah, I think the, uh, the hard part is moving out of product, which is easy. Did we hit out whatever our KPIs are for the product and moving into is the team doing what a team needs to do hourly, daily, weekly, um, that drives, it drives that, those outcomes that you want to eventually. Yeah. And, um, actually also. I really like what you said because I think um, it's easier to identify in smaller teams just because, again, these like AAAs, there's so many people that at some point nobody really has a grasp of the entire company. Um, but it's it's like you said, uh, in our studio, for example, every new person that joins is a huge, significant event, right? And to me, um, again, a bit from like design point of view, but one of the best qualities you can have a designer as a designer, sorry, is um, designing within the limits of what your employees can do. Like you basically are aware of uh, the time, the resources you have, and even the strengths of individual members, and you lean into that. And um, in this way as well, I think the performance is not just the teams, but it's very much the people giving them the tasks bear a lot of responsibility. It's like, you know, the analogy of making a fish climb a tree and saying it failed, right? I think a lot of times, um, especially in AAAs, people start being treated more as a, a number on a spreadsheet, and that's when like problems arise, and you're really not utilizing people's strengths, and then also their morale can drop because they're not doing uh, kind of what they would really want to. Yeah, I yeah, thought uh, through like the net performance management of the team. It's like, what were the metrics we would use when we were trying to get very scientific about it? And we would do team health surveys regularly. Um, the finding tended to be in the big, big companies that was, would show you less about the specific team and more about how the company or studio as a whole was trending. So that it wasn't particularly useful, um, for saying like this team is a high performing team and this team is not. Um, and. You were talking to, I think, Bogdan, about like how the community and using community as a way to judge. I think it's also um, product measurement rather than team measurement, but it it drives so much energy in the team that it's quite useful. Like if the, if the community's healthy and the dialogue's there, I think that, that a team can be performant just because it believes, because it is optimistic. Uh, because it thinks, you know, tomorrow is going to be a great day and I have energy for it. 
So I think those external measures, while not really measuring the team performance, they may be a measurement that can drive team performance. Because if, if you're afraid to go to work because the internet's screaming at you, it's very hard to have that optimistic, high belief team. So I, I think it's it's almost an inverse. It's a cause rather than a measurement, if you get what I mean, which is, is interesting. Yeah, I mean, it makes yeah, sense. Sorry, go on. Makes sense to uh, what, you're, what you're saying. And uh, from my perspective, it was more about, um, you know, going on uh, another uh, saying, the truth is in the eye of the beholder. Because um, we're talking about how do we identify high-performing teams or uh, team members. Um, sometimes the, the, the community can be a, a good indicator to that. They can say, you know, I love this uh, character or I love this story or I love the, uh, you know, this feature. So you can uh, sort of pinpoint, if, especially if it's a bigger team, where are the areas where you see that the, the, the developers, the, you know, actually managed to click to the on, on the community and they're really delivering on adverse being and it is the and the so that's why I was talking about uh perspective. Yeah I think that's really good. Yeah for me um I would just chime in as well that uh, from the like external point of view of identifying it. Um I think there's could, you, could also be interesting for us to share examples of studios we think have really done this well, like in a sustainable way. Like for me, uh, for example, one of the metrics I would use is uh, what did this company set out to do and how well did they execute it? And for example, studios like um, Supergiant for me is like an example of a studio that's the exact size they want to be. They make the kind of game they want to and they're just exceptional at it. So, you know, it's not like you're going to compare them to a God of War or something, but within the scope of what they set out to do, they're just nailing it, right? And then on the AAA side, it could be something like, uh, well, AAA is a bit harder, but <laughs> let's say like Capcom's had a bit of a redemption era, right? I would say like they're also setting out, um, like when they're doing like remakes, even recently the RE4 remake, I would say, you know, they set out to do a really well thought out uh, reimagining of a very classic and beloved game. And again, they executed it like very, very well with the game stable. It looks good. Uh, reviews are positive, critical and uh, user ones. So it is an external metric, but I think the legacy of games that a studio has been built in, even when you look into it and you see how many people have remained with the studio, um, that's usually a good indicator of it's a healthy workplace, right? Yeah, I really like that that um, comment about the team knowing who they are and what they're trying to achieve and how that feeds back into it. I'm just, it my experience in AAA is the highest performance teams I've been part of are the teams that are six months into live service where they have some stability around the people on the team. They have stability around who the audience is and what the audience needs and their stability around their software, their code, and their development roadmap, their community communications and all these things. And then they can go through these the cycles of iterating towards high performance. But that all comes down to knowing who they are and what they need to achieve, which is, is what you're saying, know who you are and what you're setting out to do. It's really good. Yeah, to me, it even goes into, um, there. there's a few titles that I think have not been talked about enough in the space, I suppose, because of the niche they're in. But um, I recently finished the early access version of Sons of the Forest which is the only titled sequel to The Forest. Um, and it was fascinating to me because you could say that it's not a particularly impressive product, but at the same time, to me, it was a good example of a team knowing exactly what their community wants. It was basically just a higher fidelity version of their original game, which was quite beloved. And they expanded on very, very few aspects, but those were the exact ones that the community wanted. So as a result, it's like the reception is overwhelmingly positive, even though um, similar titles could have been slammed for, you know, basically launching essentially a graphical update with just a few tweaks. But they knew their community very well and they listened to them. 
So from that point of view, um, I would say they were amazingly successful. And even when you think of, uh, you know, I don't think it's a household name, but uh, those two titles together have sold enough to go toe-to-toe with Modern Warfare. And I, I think it's kind of mind-blowing that, um, you know, with digital storefronts, you have these teams that even if you were to say, let's judge it by commercial success, they can easily, you know, they can easily say, like, clearly we set out to do what we wanted to and we aced it. Uh, some brilliant takeaways there from from Seon's question. Really, really good insights on that from everyone. Um, but if we just change the sort of direction um, a little bit and just go with sort of, uh, you know, Adam, um, in terms of your question, which, you know, you wanted to pose and just give some context on, you know, what made you choose that question as well. Yeah, thank you. So I, I think the leading in happy times is, pretty easy, right? It's the leading in hard times that gets hard. Um, and for a team like high performance, when everything's going well, I think, uh, Bogdan, you were talking about it. If the, if the product's going amazing, then you think next cycle, let's do all the same things and we'll be able to use Um, but what happens when the team's undergoing a ton of change or it gets a crisis? So the team's scaling rapidly or up or down, particularly down. Um, or that you have a failed launch or your project's canceled. Like how, how do you keep the team performance and the team health together and just the, the, the attitude to want to go another round? I think it's always been fascinating for me because if things don't go right generally in games, generally it's the opposite and yet you've got to keep the team together and keep them going forward. I can, I can start on, on, uh, on that. I mean, again, it, I mean, we discussed, we covered a bit in the in the first uh, topic, but uh, you know, especially when you're talking about AAA companies, um, there you don't actually have to deal that much with this. You know, if the project is killed, then the team gets broken apart, reassigned to other projects. Um, you know, that the, there is not a lot, and there's already processes in place, HR you know, retraining the SES one, seeing if there are underperformers, layoffs, whatever. So there it's already kind of, there is already a process and you just need to follow it. There's not a lot of things that you can, you can do. And each, each of these big, uh, big companies have their own culture and they, they have their own processes and they just, um, follow through with those. Um, if we're looking at a smaller team, uh, you know, small to mid-sized uh, companies that they have one, two projects uh, in development at the, at the same time, uh, there indeed it's a, it's a very different uh, story uh, because you don't have all the processes in place. Uh, you, you need to grow, but also there is a big risk attached to that because if you're 50 and you're going to 100, that's already 100% growth. Uh, and it's very hard to absorb uh, that kind of a, of a growth, especially if it's happening in a couple of months. Uh, you need to be uh, prepared for uh, for this kind of uh, of things. And I think it's uh, in my in my opinion, it all boils down to a couple of elements. First of all, you really need to have that core team that was. People then around which you build the the rest of the company, they have to be very strong. They have to be like engines in a in a in a spaceship, right? They they all need to be there. They need to drive. They need to to uh, you know kind of bring people along and onboard the newcomers and and so on and train maybe additional members so that you can also expand the the core team uh, gradually because the core team of let's say six people might work to uh for a team of like 30 40 but if you're going to 100 that core team needs to be bigger maybe 15 maybe 20 people different disciplines etc etc uh and i think one of the first things that should be put in place is a very uh well balanced support structure um it hr finance all of these things even if they're just uh, you know, one person, one HR person, one IT guy. It makes a world of difference to have somebody actually just 
fix computer problems, not to ask your technical lead to see why uh, somebody's perforce access just doesn't work anymore, or that guy forgot his password and he needs it uh, reset or whatever. All of these things, once you start having a bit of support, uh, and you can actually let these people do what they are supposed to do. And all these, well, trivial, very important things can be taken over by specialized uh, professionals, um, same with, uh, you know, HR, to look at the work contracts. Okay, you know, there is a guy who whose contract expired three days ago, but, you know, he's a nice guy. He's staying with us. I promise him that I will, I will, I will extend his contract, but I just didn't have time. You know, all of that, that stuff that can actually uh, save you a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, trouble. And it's the same with the, with the downsizing. Uh, downsizing is indeed a very dramatic process in which a lot of people uh, need to uh, be let go. And not always uh, we're talking only about low performers, but sometimes it's just, okay, you have two projects uh, with two different publishers. One of the publishers just decides to pull the plug. Uh, you might be able to save five, maybe 10 people from the team that just uh, got its project canceled. But the rest, there's nothing you can uh, uh, you can do about, uh, and they're good people. So you need to to find a way to to part ways uh, in in such a in such a way that you do not burn bridges, and uh, you can uh, people leave with a with a bit of a feeling that they've done everything they could. And uh, they don't go into a blame game and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think it's all about uh, these things and, of course, the uh, encompassing uh, culture that needs to evolve and uh, needs to protect uh, people and their uh, mental uh, well-being as much as possible. So, yeah, you want to do something? Yeah, just to chime in. Um... Actually, it's, I really like the take of how, when it really counts is in the moment of crisis, right? As you said, it's, it's always easy to coast when things are going well. Um, and in my experience as well, especially with, um, you know, again, I, I got to go through, um, as most people in the industry, quite a few canceled projects and shifts in direction and, you know, cutting scope and all this uh, unpleasant stuff. And I would say that for me and for most people actually. Um, the general opinion of the studio was more based on not the success of a project, but how they handle things when stuff gets ugly, right? That's when really people gain or lose respect and trust. And um, that's also why I think in terms of evaluating these things, uh, you mentioned like the engines, the backbone of the company, um, they need to be very trustworthy and, and respected within the studio, especially their professional expertise. Uh, they need to hold themselves to like the highest standard in the studio in terms of how they, they act and behave. And for me, the other big thing, again, bit of a designer bias, but, um, it's about the vision. Uh, a lot of times when you're working on a game, the vision holders, let's call them, they have an idea in their head, but it's not going to be until have pretty much the vertical slice as we've seen in many postmortems that most of the team actually understands what they're making. So it's almost this game of attrition where you're trying to really sell this vision to people that still don't get it. And part of that is these engines, these um, core employees or leaders um, always presenting a united front or when they're disagreeing, it looking constructive. Um, in my experience, things really start to fall apart when there's a general feeling of um, disconnect at the higher levels. And the impact on morale and therefore like performance can be tenfold that of a uh, planning or design. Like it could actually be a promising title, but the, the optics, you know, can be very important. And it's also interesting because you mentioned, uh, blood, sweat, and pixels at the beginning and actually, uh, Jason Schreier's, uh, sequel to that in a way was press reset, which was all about, uh, companies that <laughs> imploded and failed. And it was all these stories of industry veterans with like 15 years of experience and not a single credit to their name. And in a way it was even more fascinating to read the stories of the 
failed projects, even from renowned developers, um, than, you know, the success stories, because we always can romanticize the, well, as, as he says, like the blood, sweat and pixels of these amazing games, but really the, the most interesting projects, especially for our conversation, I think are exactly these canceled games and these rough launches and, um, the industry favorite word of the post-mortem, right? I'm sure you've heard it many times and you've dreaded it every single time, but, uh, it's yeah, yeah. it's just as important as success. Sorry, Adam. No, I love that. I think I was writing stuff down as you were going. It's my question, so I need the answers. I'm recording them. But the uh, I think trust is really important. When we've gone through the like the team's 185, now it's 50, now it's seven. I think the, the communication from the leaders and being clear about why that's happening why it's good for the studio, why it's good for the business, why, you know, trying to bring people back to a place where they feel in control of their destiny and it's not happening to them. Um, I like the vision and purpose. I think people can get through a lot if they know it's for something or worth something or in order to do something that's worth doing. I remember once when we're working, um, title not to be named, but the project was winding down. We had some view to it, like it's going to be three months. And, um, did had a live service and we talked about like, okay, we have three months. That's a blessing. How do we put this game in a position where one, it's going to be in a vault for 20 years, people are going to be able to download it. Will they be able to play it without error? And then two, it's going to be played online. Will they be able to play on those servers for 20 years? So we created a purpose around closing the team down in order to keep the game the best possible version of it in the vault and keep the servers alive. Um, so I think you can find purpose and vision even in really bad times to rally a team behind. And then you also mentioned both of you, those core leaders in the studio and the messaging. And I think we, when we had the worst situations, we'd call in that team of 15 or that team of 20 and give them a chance to process it uh, before the rest of the team would hear the news because they're the people that other people on the team turn to, to say, why this, why us, why now, why is this happening? And if you haven't given them the chance to process it, because everyone goes through their under seven phases of grief, you need to give time for that. Then they won't be in a position to carry a, a positive in control. You're your own captain of your own life message to all those individuals that are now affected. So I have some really good stuff there from both of you. Thank you. Just, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes from these sort of, uh, developer talks, um, was about Corey Balrog and how they were doing the God of War, the 2018 one, and how basically until the vertical slice, nobody really believed in the vision. They were really struggling with attrition of people. And one of the most important things was, um, I know it's a, it's a bit of a gimmicky, you know, saying, having the design pillars or the project pillars. But this is one thing where I really think you need it. Uh, you can have opinions on whether, I don't know, design documentation is an antiquated approach and stuff like this. But uh, in his case, they literally nailed the three pillars and they painted them in the studio. Like they put them on the walls so people would see them at all times. And those are great because for a project, uh, everything else can change, but those pillars of design should not, right? And that's the thing that people can kind of latch onto, even if your game is, I think Bogdan mentioned sometimes your game can pivot for market reasons or competitive reasons, but people need that uh, core to know what they're making, right? If somebody were to ask them, what are you working on? That's pretty much the answer, you know, NDA approved, <laughs> of course. Or, um, so yeah. I, I want to just say something. Um, else, uh, especially when we're talking about downsizing and communication in general, and you were talking, Adam, also about the trust. And I think that's, that's, um, very important when you go in front of a team and say, guys, we're, we need to let go 50% uh, of the staff, uh, our project didn't do well or for various reasons, uh, but we need to let go 50% of of the, of the people currently in this room or in this meeting, if uh, the, the people are working remote. And I think that moment, the way you're 
uh, structuring that message, um, the success that that message or the, the impact that that message will have on the team depends a lot on the trust that exists, whether the team actually trusts what you're saying, what you're trying to communicate, or they've already made up their mind in regards to, no, you're actually lying or uh, we know uh, who's to blame and other people will get uh, kicked out because of that and because the management didn't do what they were supposed to do when they were supposed to do it, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, and because always when you say, okay, we're at 50, we need to downsize to 25, that's fine. You maybe even have a preliminary list of the people that you want to, you, you need to let go, but nobody guarantees that the other 25 people that are not on the list will actually stay. So it's a, you know, how do you, do you do that in such a way that those 25 people accept and understand and do not go into legal, uh, action against the company because they're being laid off and at the same time retain the people that you want to retain. So that's, I think the biggest challenge when you communicate layoffs, how do you tell people like, okay, we need to do this, but we have a plan. And if we stick to this in a year or six months or whatever, we will all, we will go back to on the green and we'll be able to start hiring the king forth. Yeah, that's a great point. This like, cause there are two audiences for the message and to try and give the message to that combined audience is I think a recipe for disaster. So to stay honest, but I think separating those two audiences and talking to them, because uh, they're each going to process different things, need different things, different time. Obviously that's a really good point that the people that you're trying to retain and the people that you unfortunately have to let say goodbye to it. Some real fantastic points there, really, really good. Uh, some great questions uh, and some responses as well. Um, but sort of lastly, uh, with Bogdan, you know, we'll, we'll ask you your question and, and again, just give us some context on, on what made you pick that question as well. Yeah. So, um, one of my questions that I had was, uh, you know, that talking to other people in the industry, a lot of times, uh, I've seen this kind, kind of, uh, you know, when you're talking about high performance teams you automatically talk about teams that are comprised of senior staff that know what they're doing, that they can be autonomous, uh, but it's easy to, that you just you know, ask them to do something and they do it without uh, having to, to have a lot of iterations and uh, a lot of time spent in uh, endless conversations. Uh, and I can understand that logic to a certain point, but then how do we grow those high performance teams if we don't find ways to incorporate uh, and onboard uh, more junior team members? So my question is, can, can this be done or are they just impossible to, to coexist this idea of having junior team members in a high performance team? I love this question because I, I, I kind of reject the premise. I don't think you can have a great team unless the team has a mix of veterans and people that are new. Um, and again, I'll go, I'll go to sports. Like if that's your strategy to make the next best sports team, you know, I'm only going to have veterans. You're in big trouble, right? So of course you need to bring rookies in. Of course you need to bring new people in, trade from other teams, constant flow of new ideas, new approaches, new ways of working. Um, and I think the, the other downside of the veteran team is you've got the way we do it. It's the only way that it can be done. It's the way we've always done it. So that that's actually something you need to break because we've, we've all been saying that video games are not predictable. One cycle is not going to look like another. There's going to be new challenges. So new approaches are always needed and and no one that I have met has stood up, even when they're doing their GDC like victory tour and said, I have the perfect developing methodology and the perfect way of making a game. And that's, I'll just do this exact thing again. Cause it was great. So I think we're always learning. We're always trying new things. We need new perspectives. Um, but th th then you made a comment in one of the earlier questions about the IT person, like the senior team, 
generally doesn't enjoy doing the the all the tasks that need to run a tank. Uh, so there's an opportunity there for mix as well. But I think you know all of that. And what you're getting at is how do you incorporate a junior person into a senior team? And I think in the we go back to the core group of people that are those leaders on your team. Hopefully some of them love to be teachers. They love to be trainers. They love to bring people in. Um, and I think the onboarding, whether you've got a senior team or not, whenever you bring a new person into that team, how do you, like, you, you, I've been on those teams where it's like, you might have a computer, you might not, it might come a week later and then it's just watch what other people are doing, keep up and, uh, we'll see you in, at launch. Uh, I think that's horrible. And um, can you afford, and I think you should the time to stop and, and onboard new members appropriately. Um, go at a pace that maximizes their comfort levels. Um, so yeah, in summary, I think it's essential that you have a mixed team because there we need that that diversity of approach in order to renew ourselves. Um, that I don't think you can be a high performance team over time by sticking to variance. Yeah, just to chime in, um, there's also something interesting that happened uh, with COVID. Kind of the industry completely restructured, right? Uh, remote work went from this edge case option. Um, so, you know, when I was uh, initially getting into the industry, this was one of my fears, right? Um, new job means kind of moving in a lot of cases, especially if you're in the smaller markets. Uh, you know, I come from Bulgaria where the game industry is almost non-existent. So if you want a different job, you got to move countries, right? Um, but one thing that we lost, I think, in remote work, as much as I appreciate being able to work from my bedroom in my underwear, is um, when onboarding people and especially integrating juniors and really helping them um, level up their skills and feel like a part of a community, you lose the organic interaction between people. And it really became apparent how many companies were relying on that. Uh, basically, their onboarding was very poor and they were basically banking on, well, people physically being in the same space, being able to ask questions. And I even had this experience because a lot of the studios I worked on had these in-house engines. Um, and, and as you know, in-house engines are always this eldritch abomination of arcane knowledge and non-existent documentation. And it's even harder because you can't rely on Google or, or common knowledge. You kind of um, need to ask the right people, but who are the right people when you've just joined? You don't know, right? Um, so I think now that the industry has shifted much more to remote work, this stuff has become absolutely crucial. I actually even discussed it with a few people and I know a few studios have implemented stuff like uh, first few weeks or a month, you have to be on site just to get a feel for the, the vibe of the studio and to get you through the scariest period because uh, from personal experience and hearing others, it's very rough, especially if you're a little bit more junior, joining a studio fully remote. Uh, you just can be really isolated and enough people join like this and your high performance team is suddenly chugging and you don't know why, right? Just, just on that, um, we've had the opportunity to start a studio in this lockdown remote work environment and never have an office and still don't after slightly more than a year, let's say. Um, Fia, our CEO, she's a bit of a genius for this stuff, but she implemented a like cohort hiring. So in that year and a little bit, we've only hired three times and each time we've brought in five people and those five people, like, you know, when you, you're, if you've got kids or when you were a kid, when you join school halfway through the year, it sucks. But if you join at the start of the year with a bunch of other people that are new, you've got this group of people that mutually support each other. And I think if ever we, I'm in another circumstance, I'm going to try and implement the same thing is that ability to onboard a group of people, take time out as a whole company for a week, cause it's worth it now. Cause that's five new people joining 15. Uh, but then those people to be able to mutually support each other for the next six months, 10 months, because they're all learning and seeing the same things, uh, really invaluable for us. So I think yeah, the cohort, um, joining has been very good. I sort of remember that's exactly how I got into the gaming industry, uh, back in 2003, when I, I got hired in, in QA at Ubi, 
I was part of this kind of cohort. We were six uh, testers that joined the, the company at the same time, same day, uh, and so on. And actually, we ended up establishing a bond uh, between us. We were all in the same position. We were all uh, juniors. Uh, we we kind of shared whatever information, because we're talking 2003, so not a lot of technology available, not a lot of tools. And, um, you know, we were kind of sharing whatever we, we found out, like, Hey, you know, if you want this, you have to go to that person. Oh, uh, by the way, I found this thing. And so we actually were ending up onboarding each other pretty much and kind of filling in the blanks in a sort of a collaborative, uh, way. And I think it helped a lot. I mean, I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting, uh, to this kind of approach to do it like that. Yeah. What even, and we have done with delay, uh, so we'll hire you, we'll pay you, but you don't join for another six weeks because the timing's not right. And that's like, that's our treasure, right? We're giving up money, but it's worth it because that onboarding experience is so much easeful, so much more easeful. Uh, because of that cohort. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, just to, I think, uh, this will sound more like a summary, but I think it's an interesting takeaway actually from this discussion that there is the, it's a creative field and a lot of people that work in it, love it. They do it out of passion, not out of, uh, well, let's be honest, any of the work conditions or financial side of it. Um, so there's the tendency to romanticize, even when we're talking about what makes a good team, you know the visionary leader, the successful product, the, you know, um, fun side of it, the, you know, uh, flashy side of it. But it turns out that I think, um, probably the majority of what makes a team run well and a company run well is actually the boring stuff that nobody wants to do. The back office, the IT, the logistics, onboarding, documentation, pipelines, the stuff that nobody wants to look at. And we all want to pretend that, uh, you know, the more of a creative you are, the more you wish those things didn't exist, but turns out in real life, they're actually the crux of it all. That's amazing. Conclusion. <laughs> no, no, brilliant. Amazing. No, so again, really, really good question on that one. Uh, really good takeaways. I've certainly learned a lot. So I know that the listeners will be listening avidly and scribbling down some notes from what you guys have, have said today, but yeah, so before we end the podcast i just want to say thanks to all our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation um once again uh, our guests on today's podcast have been adam bogdan and stoyan um but yeah if you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role feel free to get in touch with us here at evolution or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast you can drop me a message too I am Aaron, and you can find me on LinkedIn at Aaron C. That's double A, double R, O, double N. Thanks again to all our guests, and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.